tonight, ready to worship the Lord in prayer as God's people. I just want to remind us all of what we're doing here tonight, lest you be sitting here saying, what in the world am I doing, right? Uh, We're about to approach God, our great creator, redeemer, and sustainer in prayer. And we're doing this as a church because this is what God commands us to do in his word. Corporate prayer together as God's people is both described in scripture and it's prescribed. Uh, It's described in Acts 2.42 where we're told that the believers of the early church devoted themselves together in prayer and it's prescribed throughout the New Testament uh, as Christ continually tells his churches in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, 5.17, Philippians 4.6, Ephesians 6.18, 1 Timothy 2.1, Galatians 6.2, and elsewhere, to pray without ceasing, we're told, to in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known unto God. We are told to pray at all times in the Spirit, uh, with all prayer and supplication, to first of all pray and to bear one another's burdens to so fulfill the law of Christ. All of these are directives that were given by Christ, who is our head, to his body, the local church, to carry out in situations like this, in the context of a local church. And so that's why we're here tonight, to obey the marching orders of our King who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So we have come here to pray. And with that focus, we seek as a church to grow in our wisdom and knowledge of God's Word, so that when we pray as a church, we can pray in accordance to God's will. Towards that end, we've entered into Paul's prayer closet, if you will, to spy on how he prayed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit during his writing of much of the New Testament. As we listen to him, we're desiring to learn from him and to imitate him regarding what to adore, what to appreciate, what to admonish, what to ask for, and what to amen in our own prayers. We've looked at what to adore God for, and that's frankly everything that he is, all of his character. Uh, in all of his glory and majesty, and now we're looking at what to appreciate in prayer. That is, what to thank God for in prayer. The first and most important gift that we're to thank God for, if you remember, is the gift of Jesus Christ. He is God's indescribable gift, and from Jesus Christ comes every other blessing and gift that we ought to show appreciation for in prayer. Paul mentions a few of them in his prayers of thanksgiving found throughout the New Testament. We saw in his letters so far how we ought to thank God for total victory, for eternal grace, and for saving faith. Well, tonight we're going to begin looking at the fourth gift that is ours in Christ that we ought to thank God for in prayer, and that is the gift of hope. We ought to thank God that he has given us who are in Christ hope. This comes from Colossians 1, 3-5, where Paul writes this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So this is Paul lifting up a prayer of appreciation for the gift of hope that God gives to those who are in Christ Jesus. But before we dive in, let's just ask the Lord to teach us tonight and to give us through the endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures this very hope that is described. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for moments like this in which through fallen vessels, you deliver your pure and perfect word. 
And Father, I thank You that it is through the folly of what we preach that You both save those who are lost and sanctify those who have been found in faith in Christ Jesus. And so Father, I pray that that would be what happens tonight as we come under the teaching of Your Word, particularly in this topic, Father. I pray that You would give us understanding that we might grab hold of what biblical faith is so that as we live in a world where there is no hope and there is only despair and encouragement, we might demonstrate something truly otherworldly as we look to the things not that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Give us grace towards that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, here in Colossians 1, Paul begins his letter to the Colossian believers with a prayer of thanksgiving to God. We already looked at this uh, in our study through Colossians in the morning services, and so I'm just going to repeat myself. I'm kidding. Um, Tonight, I want to look at this passage from a different perspective, slightly different angle, by chipping away at that central word, hope. Hope. After all, this is the center of what Paul thanks God for here. When you take away all the supportive phrases away, the core of Paul's prayer reads this, we thank God when we pray for you because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Here Paul lifts up a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the gift of hope, which was given, as Paul says in verse 4, to all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and love for all the saints. In other words, to all those who are born again by God's grace, all believers are given the gift of hope. And I want, us, I want to help us tonight acquire, I guess, well, it's going to be tonight, it's going to be next week, you know, newsflash, a theology of hope. And the reason why I'm taking time for this is because as I was studying it for myself, it was so beneficial for my own soul that I, you know, oftentimes I leave 70% of the stuff I studied on the cutting room floor before I get up behind the pulpit. I want to give you a little bit more than just 30% tonight. Because when we grab hold of what true biblical hope is, it transforms, it, it will transform our lives and our outlook and our emotions. And it will transform us. So, um, so I want to help us acquire a theology of hope so that we might be able to thank God for it in our personal and our communal prayers. And so now, first, what do I mean by the word hope? Let's begin by looking at a definition of the word. Let's define our terms, and then we'll look at the anticipations, and then next week we'll look at the results and the grounds for biblical hope. So first, let's look at briefly a definition of biblical hope. Many times when people use the word hope, They're thinking of a definition that is somewhere along the lines of an uncertain desire, right? So when they say, I hope this happens, what they're really saying is, I want this to happen even though I'm not quite sure it will, right? I hope that it will. In their minds, hope is defined as an uncertain desire. But when you look at the pages of Scripture, God uses the word in a very different way way oftentimes in the New Testament. When you look at the pages of Scripture, the word hope could be defined this way. A confident expectation of the future. 
That is hope, a confident expectation of the future that is based on the, on the person and promises of God. What is hope? It is a confident expectation regarding the future that is based on the person and the promises of God. That's how Paul uses it in Philippians 1 verse 20 when Paul says there, it is my eager expectation and hope. There, when Paul says that he has hope, he wasn't just saying, I want something to happen. He's saying, I fully expect something to happen. That's what hope is. It is a confident expectation regarding the future. And in fact, hope is a sister virtue to the virtue of faith. We see it used this way in Romans 4.18 when Paul says of Abraham, in hope Abraham believed against hope that he might become the father of many nations just as he had been told. And then in verse 21, it says that in hope, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So the ground of his hope landed on the promise and the person of God. He had confident expectation regarding the future based on the person and promises of God. That is hope. That's the definition of biblical hope. But what are the anticipations of biblical hope, right? It's a confident expectation of the future based on the person and promises of God. Well, what, what is it about the future that we're supposed to anticipate and expect and look forward to and place our hope on? What are the anticipations of biblical hope? What are the things that we are to confidently expect and anticipate from the future? What are the things that we are to hope in and focus on as believers? Let me give you six things that according to God's word, believers set their hopes on. Believers set their hopes on. And the first is the coming of Christ. Those who are redeemed, who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, rest their hope, they rest their confident expectation on the future upon the coming of Jesus Christ from heaven. As Titus 2.13 says, we as believers are waiting for something. What are we waiting for? We are waiting for our blessed hope. And what is that blessed hope that we're waiting for? We're waiting for that blessed hope. It is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is a fantastic verse. Our hope, our confident expectation of the future rests in Christ and in Christ alone. Our hope, our confident expectation regarding the future is not found, it does not rest in our ability as the church to reform society. It does not rest in our ability as the church to cause justice to roll down and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It does not rest in our ability to bring in the kingdom of God here on earth. No, according to Titus 2.13, our hope as believers is found solely in the glorious appearing of our, Lord, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a confident expectation of the future because we have a Christ who is coming into it. That's what Scripture teaches. He is even now standing at the door waiting for the appointed time. And it is on Christ that we have set our hope. On Christ alone. As 1 Timothy 1.1 says, Christ Jesus is our hope. 
So believers set their hope on the coming of Christ. And why do they do that? Why do they do that? They do that because when Christ comes for His own in all His glory, we will share in that glory. And that's the second thing. Believers set their hope on the coming of Christ and from that they set their hope on the reception of glory. That is the second thing that we are to anticipate as believers. The reception of glory. 1 Peter 1 Three through four describes this when Peter writes this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why? Why should we bless him? Why should we worship him and praise him? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Listen to this to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. See, there is a hope that cannot die that is given to every single Christian through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what is that living hope? It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is kept in heaven for you. Your name is on it. Believers have a living hope that gives them a confident expectation about the future. And what is that hope? It is an inheritance So, let's think about this. What is an inheritance? It is a gift that is given to children when they become inheritors of their father's blessings. Believers set their hope on their inheritance. And what is the inheritance that is waiting all God's children that is laid up for us in heaven? Romans 8.17 says this, We are God's children now, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be, listen to this, glorified with Him. The very glory that Christ receives is your inheritance as a believer. Think about that. As 1 Corinthians 3.23 says, all things are yours. All are yours, Paul says, for you are Christ's, and Christ's is God's. What an inheritance. Think about that. What glory. We will literally, as we see in the book of Revelation described, sit with Christ on his throne above all creation. How true Colossians 1.27 is that in Christ we have the hope of glory. So what are the anticipations of biblical hope that all believers set their hope on that gives them a confident, positive expectation in the future? It is the coming of Christ. So what if our earthly nations shake? We have a king who is coming for us. What do we also rest our hope on? On the reception of glory. So what if I suffer reproach and mocking for the sake of his name? I have glory that is coming. Believers also set their hope on the resurrection of their bodies. Paul says here in Colossians 1.5 that these believers had already heard of this hope when the word of truth that is the gospel was first preached to them. And I think Paul might have been taking that very literally because the very first gospel message that was ever preached in the book of Acts by the apostles actually touched on the topic of hope. And hope was defined in that very opening sermon as having one's body physically resurrected from the dead. 
Peter in Acts chapter 2 is quoting David from the Psalms in his gospel presentation, and he says in Acts 2.26, Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh, my flesh also dwelt in hope. In other words, my body has a share in this biblical hope that is described in Scripture. Why? Because just like God predicted a thousand years earlier, God did not let His Holy One see corruption. And if God did not let His Holy One see corruption, then He will not let me see it either, who have been made with one with the risen Lord. The hope of a bodily resurrection is built right into the gospel message. Jesus died and rose again. And what does Romans 6, 5 says? If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So the idea, I think this idea was certainly in the back of Paul's mind when he wrote this letter to the Colossians because whenever Paul spoke of hope throughout the entire book of Acts, every single time he spoke of hope in the book of Acts, it always referred to the hope of a bodily resurrection. For example, in Acts 23, verse 6, Paul said, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am standing on trial. In Acts 24, verse 15, he says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection. In Acts 26, 6-8, it says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any one of you that God raises the dead? This is the hope that belongs to every believer that they can grab hold of when they are walking through the shadow of death. It is the hope that God raises the dead. Believers have a confident expectation about the future because they set their hope on a physical resurrection from the dead that will occur when Christ returns for His own. This is how we can have hope. So my body is decaying. My outer man is falling apart day by day. So what? I have a resurrection body coming. A tent will be replaced with a house. Physical resurrection from the dead that will occur when Christ returns. And you know what that day will represent when our bodies are raised imperishable? Do you know why we should set our eager expectation and hope on the coming of Christ? Do you know why Paul always tried to mention that in every single one of his gospel sermons, our reception into glory and the resurrection of our bodies? It is because that day will bring freedom from corruption. Freedom from corruption. Romans 8.20 says this, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope, in other words, in confident expectation of the future, that the creation itself will be, listen to this, set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what is that freedom that we have? Then you have to ask the question, what is the freedom that we have as children of God that we will experience when we enter into glory? It is freedom from that very same corruption that's talked about in Romans 8. It's freedom from sin. It's freedom from the curse. It is freedom from all the decay and corruption that it brings. And you know what? That freedom from sin's corruption will at last be realized when, as Paul says a few verses later, we will receive the redemption of our bodies. Paul says in Romans 8, 23 through 24, 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. So that is our hope. It is the redemption of our bodies. And we eagerly anticipate the day, that day because it is when our bodies are redeemed that we will at last be set free from the presence of sin at last. You see, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. It's true. We have redeemed hearts, don't we? But do we have redeemed bodies? Yes or no? No, not at all. We still dwell in a body of death, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, a body of flesh in which the presence of sin dwells. And there's a war going on in each and every one of us who have trusted in Christ between the, between the Spirit's desires and sin's desires. And so, as, G, as Paul would describe in Romans 7, we often do the things we don't want to do, and we often don't do the things we do want to do. And that's why Paul says we groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. We groan for it. We have a hope that we were saved into, and that is that one day we who have been saved from sin's penalty and are being saved from sin's power are going to one day be saved from sin's presence forever. And the God of peace is going to crush Satan underneath our feet. That will happen when Christ returns. And we receive the redemption of our bodies and freedom from sin's corruption forevermore. Believers set their hopes on this. It gives them a confident, positive expectation about the future. Because the day when we are at last set free from the last vestiges of sin and corruption is the day when we will at last experience the fullness of righteousness. And this is what gives believers a confident expectation of the future is the coming of Christ the reception of glory, the resurrection of our bodies, the freedom from corruption, and next, the fullness of righteousness. Galatians 5.5 says this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for, listen to this, the hope of righteousness. That was spoken to believers. In other words, we as believers still have not yet tasted the fullness of righteousness yet. We still have more to anticipate and expect. Now, yes, we have been declared righteous by God through faith in Christ Jesus. Right? We've received through faith in Christ Jesus the very righteousness of God as a gift through the redemption that's ours in Christ Jesus. But even though we're declared righteous, we long for the day when we will experientially be what we are judicially before the presence of God, right? When our behavior will at last match our standing. And that day is coming. Paul says later on in Colossians 1.22 that we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God someday. No, just think about that. No more thoughts of sin. No more sinful actions. No more sinful affections. Only righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit forever. But even then, I want you to know there's still more to look forward to. Because let's be honest, even if God was to make us righteous right now where we're sitting here in Grace Chapel, there would still be a lot about this world that would be unrighteous, wouldn't it? A lot around us that is not righteous that needs to be made righteous. Guess what? That day's coming too. When as 2 Peter 3.13 says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new new earth in which righteousness dwells. So think about that. There is a day coming when we will taste full strength the glories of God's righteousness. Righteousness within and righteousness without. 
when every impulse and every experience of our life will be nothing but joy-filled righteousness forever. That is what a believer sets his hope on. So you're dealing with temptation. You're battling against sin. You are weary in your fight to honor and glorify Christ. Guess what you ought to be setting your hope on? That there is an end to the battle. And there is a day when you will stand before God pure and righteous and undefiled in total victory over sin, experiencing nothing but righteousness every second of your life. So you are the victim of injustice. So you have been mistreated in your life. I understand it. It hurts. But a day of redemption is coming. When you will taste the fullness of God's righteousness forever. This is what gives believers hope. When we lose hope, it's because we've lost our focus on the future. This is what a believer sets his hope on. This is what gives him confident and positive expectations about the future. It is the coming of Christ. It's the reception of glory. It's the resurrection of our bodies. It's the freedom from corruption. It's the fullness of righteousness. And finally for tonight, the believer sets his hope on the ending, the unending of this life. Titus 1-2 tells us that God has promised us the hope of eternal life. And then in Titus 3, verse 7, Paul says, so that being justified by His grace, we, may, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So this is kind of like the cherry on top of it all, if you want to consider it, right? We've just heard about this life that we should be looking forward to. We've just examined really briefly all these things that we should be setting our hope on. Now I want you to consider that that life that we just looked at will carry on for all eternity. So think for a moment with me. Jesus is coming for us. Hallelujah. But now consider that when He comes, He will be with us forever. We will always be with the Lord. We will enter one day into Christ's glory. Hallelujah. But now consider that when we enter into it, we will never leave it ever again. We will share in His glory forever and ever, time without end, gazing upon the goodness of the Lord and the splendor of His countenance forever. We will rise bodily from the grave. Hallelujah! But now consider that when we rise, it will not be in another body like this one, an old flimsy tent that's wearing away that we currently inhabit. It will be a building that is built by God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. We will be set free one day from corruption. Hallelujah. But now consider that when we leave it behind, we will be casting it behind us and all its experiences forever. We will never experience pain, nor sorrow, nor weeping, nor thorns, nor death, nor despair, nor discouragement. Ever again. Ever again. All things, as God says, will be made new. We will experience the fullness of righteousness. Hallelujah. But now consider this. Imagine the wonder of just one second in which you only had utterly pure and holy thoughts towards God. That experience of full and total righteousness that God gives us in His Word will be more than just a taste. 
we will be immersed into a world of righteousness, surrounded by it with nothing but goodness and purity and holiness to experience and to exhibit for ages upon ages upon ages to come. These are the anticipations of biblical hope. This is what gives believers a confident expectation about the future. And this is, frankly, what keeps believers on task about the most important mission in life. It's the coming of Christ. It's the reception of glory, the resurrection of our bodies, the freedom from corruption, the fullness of righteousness, and the unendingness of that life. This is what believers set their minds on for their hope. And this is what we have to set our minds on as well. I hope that you've written these truths down because if we're to have a biblical hope this week amidst a world of discouragement and if we are to have a confident expectation about the future amidst a world in despair then we must let these eternal realities permeate our temporary earthly life. As 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says we must put on for a helmet, the hope of salvation. See, this is hope that's not just to be delivered on one Wednesday night to be forgotten before we even leave prayer. These truths that I've just given you are to be a helmet you put on every single day. These things that we've just talked about are to absolutely dominate our thinking. You see, if you're not heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. As 1 Thessalonians 5.8 teaches us, when we put on the, as a helmet the hope of salvation, when we, when we take on the thoughts of the coming of Christ, the reception of glory, the resurrection of our bodies, the freedom from corruption, the fullness from righteousness, and the unendingness of that life, when that dominates our daydreams and our thinking, That biblical hope, that biblical anticipation protects us from Satan's snares and the world's vanities. It equips us for living rightly for the glory of God. And so I want to encourage all of us tonight to put on the hope of our salvation. Take your thoughts captive to the coming of Christ, the reception of glory, the resurrection of our bodies, the freedom from corruption, the fullness of righteousness, and the unendingness of of that life. These are the anticipations of biblical hope. This is what believers hope in. If you tonight find your hope in anything else, repent. We'll have to look at the results and the basis of biblical hope next week, but for now, I think we have enough to thank God for tonight. What do you think? <laughs> Let's do so tonight at God's people. Let's thank Him for the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus.